this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses the first Peter Gabriel solo album. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends Ken Gregory and Paul Zotter as we start on the Peter Gabriel solo catalog with Peter Gabriel 1, Car. Gentlemen, welcome to this start of the Peter Gabriel and Fish segment of the Palaver. Trying something a little different here. Going to take two solo careers, line them up side by side in a temporal fashion, and and go through them as they arrive. Very interesting, this. Uh, Ken, this was your idea, and I, I have kind of grown to embrace this idea. I think this is going to be very, very fascinating, and I fully anticipate being able to weave some narratives, as I like to do, as we go through here. And... Well, the trick is not studying Peter Gabriel and Fish side by side. The trick is doing it without an ounce of cynicism. Without an ounce of cynicism. Mm. I'm pretty well laced with cynicism, so I don't know if I can do it without an ounce, but I will do my best. I may just start the timer right now on that one. (laughs) Big fan of the timer, are you? (laughs) It's shocking to me that we designed this so that we're talking about Peter Gabriel when Tom can't be here. That seems odd to me. Yes. Well, but because it's more important to have Tom here when we're talking about fish. You've got to make choices in life. I guess. Fish. If we ever do Van Halen, does that mean we're not going to do have Tom with us when we do the David Lee Roth solo uh, solo catalog? <laughs> we are not. We are not <laughs> under any circumstances doing the David Lee Roth solo catalog. Although, although there is a connection here. <laughs> oh, excellent. There, there, there's actually a pretty strong connection that I stumbled across that we can get to. But uh, I promise you, wow. unless Tom does it on his own, like I did with the uh, John Payne Asia, there will not be any palavers on solo David Lee Roth. I'm sorry. Oh, that's just, okay. That's the way it is. I don't think that will be an objection by, uh, by any of the listeners. I just feel it's important to remind our listeners that Tom at one point did say that Peter Gabriel was like the David Lee Roth of prog rock. He did. He did, he did say that. <laughs> and we understand it as soon as he says it. We get it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was it was certainly a valid uh, observation at the time. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, so the first Peter Gabriel album, again, Growing up at the time that we did and me having sort of the tunnel vision that I tend to have, plus the, the, the way I was getting my music through my brothers was not fully prog aligned. So there was some filter in terms of the information I was getting. So I'm pretty certain that I knew of Genesis and Peter Gabriel completely <clears throat> separately. And at some point after I was aware of both of their existences, did I find out that, you know, shocker, Peter Gabriel used to be in Genesis. Ooh, wow. And... Dun, dun. <laughs> exactly. And I'm pretty sure the the first... And we talked about this in the Genesis segment, right? When it... it guess what? The self-titled Genesis was released in 83, and Invisible Touch was, what, 86 or 87. And so came out virtually on top of Invisible Touch. I mean, Genesis and Peter Gabriel were everywhere, and Mm -hmm. you couldn't Mm -hmm. escape them. 
but I'm fairly certain that due to the the the, the joys of Philadelphia rock radio, I was aware of Peter Gabriel before then because presumably they played Shock the Monkey. I, I'm pretty sure Dave had a mixtape with Games Without Frontiers on it. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, and and a couple of those, and and of course Salisbury Hill. Although I, I, you know, so I was aware of Peter Gabriel. Why? And, and mm. but I, I, I'm fairly certain the first Peter Gabriel album I ever heard was Peter Gabriel Three, and my brother Len had purchased that, um, I believe, on CD because again he was an early adopter, and and I so I think that was my first you know, album that I heard. And I probably, the second one was probably so. And then I filled in sort of around that. And I, I want to say, you know, I went back, I went backwards from three to two, probably to one, once I figured out Salisbury Hill was there. And I, oddly enough, I didn't own Peter Gabriel four or security for a really long time. And, and of course, by the time I was doing all of this, I had, I had figured out that, you know, Peter Gabriel's in Genesis and, and everything else. Now, the other part of that that I find very funny as we gear up to talk about this record, and, and you always get that, right? We talked a little bit um, when we were talking with Dan Sherman about when bands break up or people leave bands, and it's almost like dividing the house, right? You, you the... In, in this case, Peter Gabriel took certain aspects that were Genesis and, and Genesis took the rest. But we were talking with Dan Sherman about the, the Fish and Marillion breakup. And so when you had Vigil in a Wilderness of Mirrors and Season's End, you know, there were there were aspects of both of those where you could see, you know, what what parts of prior Marillion were Fish and what parts were the band. And I had no way of knowing that at the time when I first heard this because I wasn't familiar with The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. But I mean, there's a lot here that that seems to to come directly out of The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. It, it's mm. not entirely that way. I think Bob Ezrin's fingerprints are all over this, and, and, and that sort of manifests itself in some interesting ways. But, you know, knowing what I know now, this album makes a whole lot of sense to me, more so than it probably did beforehand. Learning about this album and working with the space in between the lamb lies down on Broadway and the car solo debut makes me think that we could almost do two episodes or we just make this about a huge lead up because it, it's quite possible that the story really is in the lead up and the album itself is okay. But so much happened in the two years leading up to car and there's so much drama with, with Genesis as it is. I mean, keep in mind, there were only four Magic albums with the Bill Cullen, Steve Hackett, Peter Gabriel, Tony Banks, Mike Rutherford lineup. And they happened very quickly. Yeah. 71, 72, 73, 74, bam. You know, it was really four Magic years. Genesis took eight months to do Trick of the Tale. <laughs> And Peter gallivanted about, created two babies, and pondered what it is he might do with his life. So he, he acquires lore like moss everywhere he goes. So there's so much to know about where his head was and, and what he was doing that 
resulted in this car album. And, and I think that is important, Ken, because where Peter's head is, is is going to be sort of a central part of the story as he progresses, right? Because it, it, it always has an impact on what he's doing, whether it manifests itself in in the music and and how the music is constructed or the 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 the, um, the messages in the music or the way he uses the platform that he will eventually build for himself in order to try to affect change. So I, I think it's I think that's a, a sort of a central part to this whole story. You know, for me, like Joe, I came in at so and by then Genesis and Peter Gabriel were so far away from where they left, you know, parted ways it was impossible to know one, you know, one could have been attached from the other. I honestly, I don't think I ever listened to this album until we did this exercise. I, I got into Peter Gabriel through Peter Gabriel plays live and every, I think I mentioned this in our 1980s episode or 1984 episode, every album pales in comparison to me to, to, the versions that are on Peter Gabriel's play live. Um, that's just crazy. And, you know, it was that. And so that, that, you know, turned me on to Peter Gabriel. I may have literally been walking out of the Peter first Peter Gabriel concert that I saw and overheard someone say, Oh, you know, it, like he, he's not the same as he was when he was back in Genesis. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> what dirty secret is this? To be clear, that was the 1992, us tour, right? I went. With- uh, would have been. I, I think the first time I saw him was eighty seven. No, maybe even eighty six. Oh, you saw the So tour for so, so. I saw the So tour twice and Us tour oh. once. Wow, that's pretty baller. It's funny. I was just telling my son about a couple of friends I had from Sears, and um, I actually went to the show with them. That's when I I, I started to really like Peter Gabriel. Mm-hmm. So. I can't wait to hear about all of the lore because for me, I, I listen to this album and I'm like, all right, well, there's an old Genesis song that never made the cut. And I'm like, oh, there's kind of a pop song that sounds a little bit like Bruce Springsteen. And, um, oh, I remember yes. this one from from Peter Gabriel's Play Live. And then all of a sudden it's like, wow, here's a song that's better than almost anyone he's ever going to write ever. Um, so it's it's just sort of a hodgepodge and. I agree with you, Ken. I can't wait to hear the story because I agree the same. The album is it's, it's just okay. <laughs> cut, you, cut to the chase, Paul. How do you really was feel? That, that wasn't sarcasm, was it? I, I, that wasn't sarcasm. It was, it was honesty. It was, it was honest. It wasn't cynicism. Oh, okay, that's good. All right. Mm. We've broken the 10-minute barrier, which I have to say I'm surprised. <laughs> <laughs> So what? how do we want to work in this this lore and this context, Ken? This is becoming a therapy session. So you, 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 <laughs> you guys shared how it is that you came to experience Peter Gabriel. And I may as well share similarly. So I'm like trying to be a cool teenager in the summer and... My mother wants me to do something productive and computers aren't really quite a big thing, but my mom knows that I need to learn to type. 
if I'm going to do anything on a computer. And I had so many choir and music theory classes in high school, all this, all my electives were taken up. I couldn't take typing. So she said, you're taking typing in the summer. And I just remember being stuck in the passenger seat of my mom's car. Her, she's taking me to summer typing class, <laughs> Bucks County Community College. I'm like, oh, boy. And this song comes on. It's Salisbury Hill. I'm like, wow. And I was just captivated for the whole four minutes or whatnot. And I, I just remember like having to figure out what that was and how to buy it. And then when I did, I had it on a cassette and the album sounded nothing like Salisbury Hill, but we'll get into that. Okay. Ah, you asked about the context. Yeah. Now, 1974, November, brought us The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. They, they toured extensively. Peter knew he was leaving. The band knew he was leaving. The press did not know. As a very tight-lipped English gentleman, they kept this tragic secret to themselves. During this period, yes, released Relayer. Mm. Mm-hmm. Rush released Fly By Night. We've got some Kansas, Tangerine Dream, Soft Machine, Camel. Rick Wakeman did The Myths and Legends of King Arthur and the Knights of the Roundtable. Uh, we got some Zappo. We got a lot of good stuff throughout this whole period. Oh, Steve Hackett did Voyage of the Acolyte. Mm. That is wild. Mm. 75. But, you know, this is a, a full two years before Peter's able to put out this car album. Like A Trick of the Tale, February 1976. Rush has got 2112 already in April 76. This is a great time for Prague. Alan Parsons Project, Brand X. Elias of Sun Hillow was released in July. Yes, thank you. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, Steve Howe has Beginnings. Kansas has Left Overture. Oh. Queen Day at the Races. Genesis Wind and Weathering. Could you imagine that? And they put out two albums in the same year. So the, the four-man Genesis span was between The Lamb and Carr? Like, entire four-man yeah. Genesis existed and was gone by the time Peter released his first solo album. That is hilarious. That is. Peter was contemplating. <laughs> <laughs> Truly. So, so January 77, we've got Pink Floyd with Animals. Uh, Utopia Ra, Jethro Tull, Songs from the Wood, and then February 1977, finally releases his Bob Ezrin masterpiece. So, so think about that, and whatever you want to say, uh, you know, because there's always going to be the comparison, right? When, when uh, you know, someone like Peter Gabriel, who was credited or at least perceived to be the creative force in Genesis, right? He leaves, takes two years to put this out. And while he's putting this together, Genesis release A Trick of the Tale, arguably one of their best albums, hands down, and Wind and Wuthering, which I, whatever you have to say about it, I think it's clearly objectively superior to this. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's got to be tough. I, you know, I, you wonder if, if you know, what, what the perception was at that point. That's mm. amazing. But I wonder if it offered any sort of like liberation from, 
you know, any pressure, you know, like, or I mean, whether it added pressure or whether he thought, well, great, they're going on there about their, their way. And everyone's really into that. Now I don't have any, as much to live up to. I don't know. You wonder if it, if it had a, a higher amount of, of pressure or a lesser amount on him. I don't know. So what if I read the particulars now and then we can get into that that fallow period, that two-year period, Ken, and as we sort of naturally lead into the album itself? Cool? Oh, we shall. I'm good with that. I just want to understand whether you just said fallow. Is that F-A-L-L-O-W? That is correct. Okay. That is your palaver word for the evening. Yes, thank you, Joe. <laughs> just wanted to make sure we got got that that in there. Okay. Huh. All right. So, um, Peter Gabriel One was released on February twenty fifth, nineteen seventy seven. It was released on the labels Charisma in the UK and Atco in North America. Produced by Bob Ezrin. The personnel. Include Peter Gabriel on vocals, keyboards, flute, and recorder. Robert Fripp on electric guitar, classical guitar, banjo. Tony Levin on bass guitar, tuba, and leadership of leader of the barbershop quartet. Um, Josef Chiroski on keyboards. Larry Fast on synthesizer and programming. Alan Schwartzberg on drums. Steve Hunter, acoustic guitar on Salisbury Hill, lead guitar on Slow Burn, and waiting for... Um, the big one, electric guitar, rhythm guitar, pedal steel. Steve Hunter is the connection to David Lee Roth. Steve Hunter appeared among um, many other places on a good good part of the David Lee Roth solo catalog. Dick Wagner, backing vocals, guitar on Here Comes the Flood. Jimmy uh, Malin, percussion, synthobomb, whatever that is, and bones. It, it also features the London Symphony Orchestra, and the arrangement of that by Michael Gibbs. The track listing is Moribund the Burgermeister, Salisbury Hill, Modern Love, Excuse Me, Humdrum, Slow Burn, Waiting for the Big One, Down the Dolce Vita, and Here Comes the Flood. Wikipedia has a very long initial section on this, so excuse me. Peter Gabriel is the debut solo album by English progressive rock singer-songwriter Peter Gabriel and the first of four with the same eponymous title. Released on 25 February 1977, it was produced by Bob Ezrin. Gabriel and Ezrin assembled musicians including guitarist Robert Fripp and his future King Crimson bandmate Tony Levin on bass. On the album's release, Gabriel began touring with a seven-piece band under his own name. The album went to number seven in the UK and number 38 in the US. This album is often called either Peter Gabriel One or Car, referring to the album cover by London artist Peter Christofferson. Music streaming services currently refer to it as Peter Gabriel One colon Car. Gabriel's first solo success came with the album's lead single, Salisbury Hill, which Gabriel has said is about, quote, being prepared to lose what you have for what you might get. It's about letting go, end quote. Although mainly happy with the music, Gabriel felt that the album, particularly Here Comes the Flood, was overproduced. Piano only or piano with synth versions of the song appear on Robert's Fripp, Robert Fripp's exposure in his appearance on Kate Bush's December 1979 BBC Two TV special, in which Gabriel and Bush also duetted on Roy Harper's, there's another connection, Another Day. 
A third such version appeared on the 1990 compilation album Shaking the Tree, 16 Golden Greats. Mm. Gabriel often performs the song live, accompanied by only himself on keyboard, either in German or English, depending on the audience. The song was debuted during an appearance on Thames Television's Good Afternoon in the summer of 1976. Direct Disc Labs released a half-speed mastered version of the album from the original master tapes. It has a longer version of Slow Burn, 516 instead of 436, with the song's introduction intact. All other versions of the album have the introduction with a full band edited out. A lot going on there. I want, and we can, I'll talk about it when we get there, but it's interesting that in that paragraph, the different versions of Here Come the Flood are called out explicitly. Um, cause I, I, I have some, some pretty strong feelings on that myself, but I guess there, there are a couple things. Maybe I can get this out of the way. Um, there's a lot of talk about the nomenclature for these first four albums. And quite frankly, I, until we started researching this sort of stuff for the palaver, I was always under the impression that Peter Gabriel four actually had the official name security, but apparently it doesn't. Um, huh. Peter describes, um, in the the Wikipedia for Peter Gabriel himself, this this topic is actually addressed. Gabriel did not title his first four albums. All were labeled Peter Gabriel using the same typeface with designs by Hypnosis. Quote, the idea is to do it like a magazine, which will only come out once a year, end quote, he remarked in 1978. Quote, so it's the same title, the same lettering in the same place, only the photo is different, end quote. Each album has, however, been given a nickname by fans, usually relating to the album cover. I thought that was interesting. The other interesting thing um, with regards to this particular cover, there there are a couple of different things. It was done by Hypnosis. The car is a Lancia Flavia that belonged to Storm Thurgeson. There was some description I found online about some of the techniques they used to enhance this particular photograph. And it sounds very arduous and I don't fully understand it, but it was interesting. Because if you look at at Peter Gabriel, his face in the car looks very unnatural. And part of that is apparently he was wearing mirrored contact lenses that he had to sign some sort of a waiver to actually utilize because the company wasn't entirely certain that they were safe for use. But he seemed to be very smitten by the visual effect that parted on the the picture. So that just some interesting things that I wasn't necessarily aware with regards to this particular cover. I had heard, I I know a little bit of the lore about um, Peter Gabriel 3 Melt, but I had not read any or was not aware of any of the lore with this particular album cover. So that's the extent of my lore. And so, Ken, but I understand you have some information on this two-year period and the lead in, into this album. Indeed. There, there are two resources that I dug into. My Book of Genesis by um, Richard McPhail is absolutely priceless because you'll get that uh, sixth member of the band type view as to how this progressed. Daryl Islea wrote Without Frontiers, Life and Music of Peter Gabriel. So I've I've gone back and forth between these two resources. I mean, it is true, as we remarked in our Genesis segment, Peter experienced fatherhood and he could not maintain the schedule, the dedication that the other members of Genesis were were willing to maintain. And by then, I think they were successful enough 
where they could distance themselves from those pressures, but they chose not to, which is evidenced in, you know, the two albums that came out in 1976 that we just spoke. They were raring to go and nothing was stopping them. Uh, Phil has an incredible work ethic. We know that uh, Tony is hyper-focused and hyper-talented. And uh, I'm sure that uh, Mike enabled all of them and uh, they they, they just went. Steve was uh, along for the ride, at least for one of those albums. Uh, Peter, uh, you know, raised uh, two two daughters and uh, he he wallowed around with uh, different partners. Actually, during the Lamb sessions is when he met uh, lyricist Martin Hall. So there were uh, three songs that came out of that. And one actually made it to a vinyl single. So um, Firebirds is beautiful. That's uh, got uh, Peter on flute. That's pretty nice. Get the Guns is another one. You Never Know is the one that actually went somewhere. We'll talk about that. Now, who helped Peter? He wasn't one to, you know, multi-track by himself. I don't know to the extent that he had access to that technology. He always needed musicians around him. And who did he trust? Well, he trusted Phil Collins. He trusted Mike Rutherford. He, he, he would collaborate with different musicians. But specific to this project with lyricist Martin Hall, Aunt Phillips, back. Really? Yes. Yes, there is a very famous... Demo that I speak of, all three of these tunes, Aunt Phillips plays uh, piano. He hosted the group at his parents' home. I'm forgetting the third member at this point, but um, they they put together this material. And then when they finally got this uh, You Never Know single uh, together, the guy that recorded it was a comedian. And the session was amazing. Phil Collins and Fripp and Peter was in there and folky Sandy Denny sang on it. We'll have to put this in the uh, in the show notes. Yeah, so so that that's yeah. the Charlie Drake track that you had sent us, right? Charlie Drake, there you go. Yeah, that's fantastic. It's better than the whole album. <laughs> this leads me to Bob Ezrin. We know that Peter had this spark of creativity from the surviving demos and from the Drake uh, vinyl single. So, what was this? thing that happened to Peter, you know, what happened to his ideas and his music through the Bob Ezrin filter, if you will. So, and, and who was Bob Ezrin and what was going on with him? So what exactly happens when Peter Gabriel goes through the filter of Bob Ezrin? Bob Ezrin was a hit maker and an album maker. If you've heard Alice Cooper schools out 1972, uh, if you've heard his work with Lou Reed in 1973, if you heard 1974, Aerosmith, same old song and dance, Train Kept a Rollin', that's Bob Ezrin. How about Kiss? If you've ever heard Detroit Rock City or Beth, that all happened under the tutelage of Bob Ezrin in 1976. Also in 77, he was working with the Babies. Their debut, it was John Waite. So all of this happened prior to Carr. Peter admits he was no Alice Cooper. He was no Kiss. But he was willing to work in this pop 
sphere with Ezrin. Go figure. And that's how this, that's how this all came about. That's interesting. So as we get into this and as we go through the songs, right, I think this will sort of, you know, sort of naturally manifest itself. If that's the, the, the lens that we're talking about, so you have proggy, artsy, fartsy Peter Gabriel with Robert Fripp, and you have North American hitmaker um, Bob Ezrin coming together, I don't think that's a really good mix. <laughs> it, it doesn't seem that way. It, it, it doesn't it doesn't sort of work out, I think, in the way that anyone would have anticipated it, it worked out. Especially when you think about, you know, again, and, and I, I almost feel bad doing this, but you almost have to draw the parallel between, you know, what comes out of this and the, you know, the 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 songs and and the the accessibility that come out of a trick of the tail. Now, mm. granted, you know, Peter maybe brought a, a a heavy dose of the weird with him that could not be contained by Bob Ezrin, and I think that's part of it. Mm. I don't honestly know how much Robert Fripp has to do with that, because I think a lot of what I would in my mind think of Robert Frippness doesn't really manifest itself on this record either. It was a compromise. Peter brought Robert Fripp and Bob Ezrin found bulk of the other musicians, including Tony Levin. So let's let's talk Tony Levin for a second. Do we know like where in, in his career Tony Levin is at this point? Because this is not what will become classic Tony Levin, right? This is not you know, savant Tony Levin. This is pretty subdued, you know, there, there's nothing about the bass playing on this record with one or two exceptions that make me go, aha, this is Tony Levin. So I'd was, agree. was Tony just starting out and he hadn't developed the, the, the Tony Levin persona? Or again, was it sort of, was there some sort of constraining of these these musicians? I don't know. I see Herbie Mann on his resume. He's been relatively unknown at this point until he's paired up with Peter Gabriel. And needless to say, the marriage of Tony Levin with Robert Fripp is iconic in the King Crimson lore. Right. And, and that's kind of what I suspected. You know, when I listened to this and, you know, having a, a a man crush or whatever you want to call it on Tony Levin, you know, I, I and quite honestly, you know, there there are there's not a whole lot here to really capture one's attention for the most part. So it's like I, I went through and, and gave it a full listen, focusing on on the bass playing specifically. And it just there there it like I said, it wasn't what I would have anticipated. And I, I suspected that it was, it was again, just a, a relatively young musician who hadn't developed those, you know, otherworldly skills for which he will become known. Well, you know, he was experimental in his early days, but really settled in mid seventies into being really a studio musician in uh, the mid seventies. 
he was playing on Buddy Rich's albums. He played on a Paul Simon album. Um, Andy Pratt, Andy Newmark, Hugh McDonald, Luther Vandross. Like he's kind of just working for everybody, doing whatever, you know, whatever the job needs. And is Peter Gabriel creating a band for this record or is he just bringing in musicians to play on it? And does Eleven join the band, so to speak, after the album's recorded? Yeah, I think the band just kind of inadvertently happened afterwards. And and Peter had two bands. He had an American band and he had a European band and they were different. Yeah, that's how I would roll. I mean, it's it's fascinating. I mean, we can knock the album a little bit for how potentially overproduced and disjointed it sounds, but it really did set the necessary framework for a Peter Gabriel solo career. And, and Ken, I, I'm so glad you said that because I think that is an absolutely critical aspect of this. Whatever else this album is or is not, it it most certainly is the foundation for what will become solo Peter Gabriel in terms of he establishes a lot of, you know, I hate this word, but a lot of the, the tropes that will become associated with him and a lot of the personality that will sort of continue to filter through his music, even as it morphs into a more polished approach, is is presented right here. You can clearly see those aspects of early Genesis that are attributable to Peter Gabriel. And it's interesting to see him, you know, sort of take those and develop those. And I was thinking about this, you know, if, if you think about if you have two plants in, in a pot and you let them grow together and then at some point you decide to separate them out and put them in separate pots and, and the, the, the physical act of taking them out of the soil and separating out their entangled roots and everything else and there may be some you know, collateral you know, stem damage or whatever and, and you put them in the pots and in the beginning they look you know, smaller and, and you know, perhaps less less vibrant or, or whatever, but in time, both of those plants will now grow to fill the space that they have by themselves. And, and I think that's, that's how I think of this record. It's raw, just transplanted Peter Gabriel that hasn't had a chance to establish its roots yet. Whereas, you know, perhaps on the other side, when you have four of the members who, you know, still have that sort of band rapport in terms of performing and writing and things like that, that the removal of Peter, is, and I don't know if, I, you know, when you look at the lore, I don't think anyone anticipated Phil Collins would be what Phil Collins became at that time, but there just, there wasn't as much open space in, in that mm. flower pot as there was in Peter's flower pot. That is so perfect. A flower? Um, the, the soil! The soil! <laughs> uh, that's awesome. I, so I, uh, like so many things are bursting out of my head right now. So I watched the, one of the documentaries on the on the Veltsmerch um, DVD or Blu-ray that I got. And actually, I, and I, I would not really consider... Peter this way because I I just always can sort of consider him as a as a pretty high level musician <clears throat> but 
Fish kind of talked about in his his thing how there was like a frustration that he had because he couldn't get out what he wanted to get out, you know, from his writing and music. Like music was somehow constraining him. And when I was thinking about this record, listening to it, to me, it just seemed like Peter Gabriel was everywhere. It was a little bit of, you know, where he wants to go, a little bit of where he's been, somewhere in between. Let's try this. And but I but I wonder if there was an opposite, like instead of it being all over, like there's almost like a frustration, like he doesn't have a band, like he doesn't have a core that helps him perpetuate a certain part of what he's trying to create. Maybe that's what he was trying to get to, but it definitely seems like there was some growing in the flower pot necessary as it goes through. I will say this, while it's fun to think about the odd combination of Bob Ezrin and Peter Gabriel. Bob Ezrin, all over the map in his career, to all the way through the 70s, 80s, 90s, et cetera. Like he's worked with everybody and he's never pulled any punches. And I went back to some of those Alice Cooper tracks because that the entire discography of Alice Cooper through the whole 70s was all written and produced by Bob Ezrin. And there's actually some really great Alice Cooper songs. My favorite one is called I Never Cry. I had a 45 of that. Not written by Bob Ezrin or Alice Cooper. However, that comes from the album Alice Cooper Goes to Hell and Session Player One Tony Levin. And it's funny you bring that up because Steve Hunter also shows up on the Alice Cooper catalog. So, yep. so Steve must have been on Bob Ezrin's shortlist and that's how he wound up here. Yeah, let's do do more of the Bob Ezrin thing, and then we'll do some of the Steve thing. I'm just I'm just spilling out here with information. Uh, let's let's do a thumbs up or a thumbs down for the rest of the 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 Bob Ezrin discography. The Wall, 1979. Um, big thumbs up. <laughs> you know what? You should listen to the orchestration on Beth, and then listen to the Michael Kamen orchestration on the Wall. I feel like Beth was practiced for the Wall. Wow. There's wow. something going on in Bob Ezrin's head after he. Did. It's interesting, Ken. Uh, I I'm gonna do that. Yeah, yeah. It's the New York Philharmonic on Beth, and it's Michael Kamen and however many orchestras they managed to collect for the wall. <laughs> uh, all right, so thumbs up or thumbs down? David Gilmore about face 1984. Thumbs up. Thumbs up. Kansas. What did I write here? In the Shape of Things. Is it's, that a- it's funny. I. I'm not familiar with In the Shape of Things, and I meant to go listen to that before this. I've heard it. I, I just I haven't listened to it in long enough that I don't remember. In the Shape of Things was late 80s, early 90s, I think. And it was after Steve Walsh had come back, and it may have been the return of Robbie Steinhardt. I don't really remember. Mm. Um, I think Neil Morse was still there. I don't think Carrie Livgren ever came back. I, I'm going to assume it's a, it's a thumbs up, but I... I I'm just doing that off reputation. We owe it to ourselves to do that track with Kansas once we uh, once we come out of the British people. How about this album, Can't Look Away, 1984? Oh, thumbs up. Thumbs up. How about this little-known album, Momentary Lapse of Reason, 1987? Oh, that's terrible. That's trash. <laughs> <laughs> Catherine Wheel, 1997. Plus, uh, thumbs up there. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Thumbs up for the flavor on behalf of Colby. Nine Inch Nails, The Fragile, 1999. He did album sequencing. I don't, I don't know exactly what that means. 
Yeah, who knows? But um, not not my not my favorite nine inch nails. Yeah, I, I agree. Not my favorite nine inch nails either. So, at, at the end of the game, I'm going to give a, a thumbs up for the 2000 album, The Jayhawks Smile. It's more of a, oh, a pop. Nice. So he deserves a lot of credit, and he's brilliant. And for his work on Salisbury Hill alone, and here comes the flood. We 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 owe a debt of gratitude. But as an experience, the album does not take us anywhere. It's just an odd demo that accidentally produced a hit or two. Mm. And, and it is odd, right? Because I, I made the note as I was going through this and, and, you know, making my notes, you know, song by song. The first four songs on this record are each entirely different from the other three songs. It, it's like yes. the the spectrum that he covers is is mind boggling, and, and it's like you said, Paul. It's like he, he's everywhere, and he can't decide where he wants to be, so he does everything. Maybe that's a good thing. I don't know, but it's it's certainly noteworthy. That's why we need that that Charlie Drake single to kind of explain the comedic, childlike show tune space right. that. The, the Willow Farm space that Peter was in. You know, one last thing, uh, Ken, you mentioned earlier. I think you said that the only Kiss song you would listen to is Detroit Rock City. Is that what you said? Kiss is not a good band. Yeah, but that's the one song. Like you won't even you won't even find some space in there for say, uh, I was made for loving you. Oh, you know what? <laughs> There was only one Kiss album in the house. I don't know why mom ever picked it up. But, uh, yeah, what is that called? Um, shout It Out? Shout It Out Loud? Well, Shout It Out Loud is on Destroyer. That's another what, great one. You won't, you won't listen to that one? What is the one with I Was Made For Loving You? That's more of like a 70s. Dynasty. Dynasty, yeah, that was their disco hit, yeah. For whatever reason, we had Dynasty in the house. Which Funny was story about Dynasty, <laughs> if I can digress for just a moment. Sure. So I was young. Whenever Dynasty came out, was what were we, 10, 12, something like Probably. that? Probably, yeah. And my aunt, my Aunt Dot, who was just the coolest aunt in the world, took me and my brothers to the mall. I don't know why. I don't know what the occasion was. But I remember we were in a record store. And she was going to buy us a record. And I wanted Dynasty because I i guess I had heard I was made for loving you on the radio and I wanted to have that. And I don't know exactly what my aunt's motivations were. If, if she knew, like, my mother would freak out about a Kiss album because of, you know, Gene Simmons and Satan imagery and all this other business. Or if she just had her doubts that she should spend her money on an album where I knew one song which is also a very valid point. But I remember pointing to this and said, I want this. And in her inimitable way, she somehow logic convinced me to instead buy a K-Tel album. <laughs> ah. <laughs> <laughs> so I never did own Kiss Dynasty, but I, did, I, I vividly remember that sort of exchange in the record store. Did the K-Tel album at least have I Was Made For Loving You on it? I don't honestly recall what it had <laughs> on it, but... Uh, <laughs> Oh, gosh. And just for the sake of argument, Destroyer is the one with the black and white photograph where 
Gene Simmons was in a different colored suit, and it was the whole Paul is dead thing. <laughs> Dork. <laughs> I'll have to ask Mark Anthony K. I I don't know. I don't. Know. I, don't. Uh, I thought Destroyer was the one where they were all on the skulls. Yes, you're right. Yes, yes, yes. Destroyer was the ones where they were. It was sort of like the uh, the artistic drawing. Yes, but that has nothing to do with Peter Gabriel Carr. Well, it it, it actually has a, it possibly has a lot to do with it, but Quick you know, there's a lot of connection there. A kiss episode. You just you just. Take my mic and you hand it over to Mark Anthony K okay, and I'll, I'll I'll take the night off. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I don't know that we need to do Kiss on Progressive Palaver any more than we need to do David Lee Roth. So, you know, if if we're looking for things to do uh, that are sort of off the beaten path, I've got other options that I would put on the table. I, I'll I'll simply throw this out though because in 1977 it was fine, just like it's fine in. 2020 for a producer to work with a band like kiss and then to go work with a prog solo artist like peter gabriel why can't fucking musicians be the same way and cross over and do all kinds of crazy stuff why does everybody have to stay in their in their lane that's it mm. i can't argue with you would you believe that rob fripp had a pseudonym and it sounds a lot like David Rhodes, but it's Dusty Rhodes. Mm. So there, during the so period, and and for most of the touring that we're aware of in Peter Gabriel's career, he toured with David Rhodes on guitar. Right. But I was reading in the lore that Fripp sometimes went by this alias Dusty Rhodes. Really. And that that was helpful to me because seeing Dusty Rhodes and David Rhodes is confusing. Uh, but I'll also be confused with Dusty Hill of ZZ Top. <laughs> <laughs> that would be even more confusing. Uh, Dusty Rhodes was also a professional wrestler. I was going to say, yeah, he was a wrestler. I know that name had some. Yeah, yeah, he wouldn't make the cut, but um, he wouldn't get past Ezrin. He wouldn't get through the filter, shall we say. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, you've already got Fripp doing guitar work. How do you need another guitarist? What could possibly come up? But just as we've indicated, Ezrin knew that Hunter, Steve Hunter, need. Mm -hmm was needed to execute this part. And, and it's a bitch of a part. Now, now, Paul, you've actually played Salisbury Hill in pubs for years. And, 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 I, and, and you may or may not use a capo. And I think if I recall what you're doing, you're in first position chords and you do a brilliant job of, of strumming through the kind of singer songwriter version. Yes. Thank you, Ken. That's exactly how uh, it is capo four, by the way. Yeah. Oh, you're doing capo four. Okay. So, so are you doing it in the original key of B or are Don't, you? Um, I think it would be. Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. Because, because you are, are blessed with a voice and you've been our singer for years, ever since uh, eighth yeah. or ninth grade, if I, if I remember correctly. Hmm. But thank you. I, I, I was not blessed with that range. So when I do it, I do it down a whole step. But I'm, I'm here to talk about just the brilliance of Mr. Steve Hunter. So mm. 
if you're going to be better than Fripp, you better be good. And th th this this guy is good, at least in his realm, in his world of Travis picking. So, so Paul, where we grew up, and J Joe, you may remember this somewhat too. There was a folk music shop where I took lessons, Bucks County Folk Music Shop, and thumb. I just used to sit there, watch TV, and do the thumb thing, and that's that's what Salisbury Hill is based on. You would just like watch the Love Boat and Fantasy Island, and you would just do that the whole time with the thumb, because that's the only way you learn the Travis picking. Just keep that thumb going back back in the seventies, and then um, you know. Sometimes I play Salisbury Hill. I don't, I, don't, I don't do the Travis picking because it's so hard. There's another way to do it where you just. So it's like playing the bass part without doing the. Travis picking. And it kind of, you know, the easy one. Basically, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. But when I really got my shit together, it's it's a little bit more of that stuff. It's a little bit crazy. So that that one, I don't normally play it, but it's so gorgeous, and that's what what Hunter actually did, which is a lot of work underneath there. Anybody can sit there and go. But then can you put the bass underneath it? And can you put the Travis picking with it? There it is. It's a Listen, just for the record, I never spent watching the time watching The Love Boat or Fantasy Island practicing my Travis picking, which is why you end up with the strumming singer-songwriting version anytime you see me play that song. <laughs> it's not too late, Paul. <laughs> oh. You're watching all those Marvel movies? Yeah, you know, right. It's an right. opportunity. Yeah. It's just a gorgeous progression. It's just wonderful chords. And uh, apparently Hunter has an article out there where he talks about you know, Ezrin, hey, we need you to come in and do some acoustic guitar playing, but it's in seven. And sometimes it's a four grouped with a three, and sometimes it's a three grouped with a four. So just come in and do this. And he had no prior knowledge. He didn't write the song with Peter Gabriel. He didn't know about this. This is just a brilliant session musician putting that together in one day. And it is one of the most iconic guitar parts. It has stayed with me since I was a teenager driving down the road in my mom's honda accord and i'm mm. so glad to almost kind of sort of be able to evoke some of that emotion out of a guitar yeah awesome you know we we've kind of hopped right over more abund the burgermeister but i also stumbled upon some very interesting lore with regards to salisbury hill it's surprising in a way and it's funny how these things happen so i actually got this from steve hunter's website he recalls that the song was the last to be recorded and fripp had already left the country and so that's why hmm. steve hunter was left to do it it goes on to say steve 
Peter and Bob gathered around a piano as Peter showed Steve what he had in mind for the opening guitar. Bob suggested Steve try doing it in the Travis Picking style. The song is mostly in 7-4, so it was a bit of a challenge for Steve. Then he had to get it right three times as they tripled the part. Many people think that that part was done on a 12-string, but it was not. And this is where things get really interesting in this story. Mm. So there's a quote here from Steve. I borrowed the guitar from an assistant engineer named Jim Frank, a really nice guy who's no longer with us. He had this really wonderful old Martin. I don't know if it was a D18 or a D28, but I played it on a few songs because it sounded great and played wonderfully. The chords are more voicings than chords. Um, there are chords, but I was thinking in the key of A, except I used a capo on the second fret. There's nothing oh. outside the key at all. Just the way the voicings work with the keyboards makes them sound unique. Um, and in, and then he goes on, he actually has a, a photograph. In 2014, Peter Gabriel gave Steve credit for coming up with the guitar parts on Salisbury Hill. And this is, this is what's the picture from, I guess, whatever, um, interview that, that Pete was giving. Um, it says, Ezrin used a little of his studio magic to make the single happen. It became the hit once we got it on the floor, he recalls. Quote, Steve Hunter came up with a guitar part, which in my mind is, is as important as the melody. We took away Steve's electric guitar and gave him a 12-string that he hadn't played in a long time. So in 2014, Peter Gabriel is giving a completely contradictory account of, <laughs> of how that was recorded than the guitarist himself is providing. It, it just boggles the mind. When That's awesome. Across that. Well, you know, Peter's probably had a few martinis since then, then you know. <laughs> and I just think it's funny that on the Steve Hunter website, there's actually a, a physical picture of the, uh, That's of the awesome. Gabriel quote. <laughs> You're spinning the wheels here after I've been diving into the Richard McPhail material. There is a story of Peter, um, maybe not so intentionally, indulging in some hash cake and he didn't <laughs> to walk home because he didn't want to be recognized or engaged in conversation. And he had a micro cassette recorder of some sort with him. And he leaves the home of the hashish begged goods people. And he's got this micro cassette recorder that he turns on. And he instead follows a stream home with the recorder taking his narration of all the fences he must jump over and all the weeds he's diving through. <laughs> um, Peter rarely engaged in indulgences or chemicals of anything of that sort. And when he did, he was quite embarrassed and, and mm. did not want to be seen or recognized. But it is 1977, so... Yeah, I will say this, um, you know, just back to the Travis picking in that guitar part, David Rose was not playing anywhere near that part um, on Peter Gabriel Plays Live. Not at all, which which is which is awesome because that's, you know, the definitive version in, in my mind. It is a magical song. And I'm, my, my mind, even more so after listening to you play that, Ken, the fact that they tripled it in my mind, it's just like, wow. And and you, you mentioned a couple times about the 7-4 meter. I've always been struck at how long it was until I realized that song was actually in seven, four. And I think it's, it's probably the most common. I mean, is there, a, is there another hit or a single 
that is so popular that is in seven four. I mean, it's point taken, not to my knowledge. Yeah, it, I mean, it just it, it the the melody flows so nicely. You never even really realize that it's in seven four. And I will say that I've played that song so many times, and I have been sure that I'm not playing it in seven four. Like I am absolutely certain. And then like I'll have a recording of it, and I'll just start counting, and I'll be like, "Damn." I'm playing the whole thing in 7-4. And it's not because I'm doing anything. It's just because that's how natural it feels in 7-4. It, 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 if you play it in a, a even signature, it feels wrong. Indeed. Well, I mean, it, it, it's more or less a phrase followed by three beats. Boom, boom, boom. A phrase followed by three beats. Boom, boom, boom. Uh yeah, I mean, or you can, and then, I mean, that's three beats right there. You just can't add an extra beat is my point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You can't, you can't add that eighth beat. I mean, it was written to be what it is. And he, he came up with a very good meter and he stuck to that meter, you know, to his credit, this is a better implementation of odd time than many things that Genesis did because it is so pure. And it's always interesting, right, when odd time comes up because sometimes, you know, it's like this, like you said, Paul, you, you almost don't even notice it. And then there are other times where it's just like a slap in the face every time that beat is missing. And you're like, what? And, and it, yeah. you know, it, it's it's funny how how that sort of comes about sometimes and, and, and it just works differently depending on, on how everything was written. It, it, I find that to be fascinating. Interesting I, thing is as we're sitting here talking about this, right? We haven't, we've been talking for God knows how long at this point. We haven't said <laughs> word one about any lyrics, mm. not a word. And I find it interesting because Certainly, as these songs are presented here, and I think there's an exception um, that we'll, we'll hopefully get to, the words are not as striking as you would expect from Peter Gabriel. There's nothing that leaps out and grabs you in the face. There's not, there's not a family snapshot. There's, there's not a, you know, a rhythm of the heat. There's nothing like that here yet. It's odd that. You know, there was such a big production made out of Peter doing the lyrics on, on The Lamb and mm -hmm. a lot of Peter's songs, you know, certainly from from three onward, I think, you know, he starts to really come into his own in terms of of delivering these very sharp images and telling these these very crisp stories. And that's not here yet either. So if we take a step back and we go to Moribund the Burgermeister, right? Very odd name. We have to. Well, we don't. We don't have to spend a whole lot of time there. Uh, other than it's a heavy dose of Peter Gabriel weirdness, but I, and and I haven't even been bothered to look up the lyrics to try to figure <laughs> out what it is. You know, it's it's not that I just I don't know what it's about. I don't care enough to find out what it's about. Right. 
Well said. It is interesting that it is, it, to my knowledge, the only second reference to a Burgermeister in popular culture. <laughs> would the first be Burgermeister Meister Burger? Of course it would be. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. I agree, Joe. After everything you've listened to, I, I mean, and this is probably terrible to say, but after everything I've listened to, you know, with Peter Gabriel in Genesis, I'm just not even curious. And it could possibly be because I, you know, started with Peter Gabriel so late and worked all the way back. Right. You know, I'm, I'm just not that curious about that. I'm just like, yeah, this is a leftover from Genesis and I don't really care about it. You know, and maybe this is something we have to talk to someone like Ken Fuller about and, and see, you know, if you started from the beginning, how did this land with you? Yeah. I, I do think... It's interesting, right? Because Moribund the Burgermeister, again, establishes sort of the Peter Gabriel creepy part. Things that you get like an intruder and yeah. um, digging in the dirt and, and things like that, right? That, that that sort of dark angle is going to manifest itself again and again and again. There's, you know, the the requisite sort of sonic weirdness. Okay, that's cool. Great. But the choruses on this are just fucking huge. And it's like... You know, that's where the Bob Ezrin thumbprint just. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, all right, Pete, you can be weird for, you know, 90 seconds, but I'm going to take these next 45 and I'm going to ramp up the (laughs) balls. Right. (laughs) It certainly does that. Goodness. So I I, I just those were my notes on uh, on Moribund, the Burgermeister. And I do have a note actually on Salisbury Hill that that I I totally forgot about because I was so entranced by, you know, Ken's playing and, and the discussion of the guitar part and all the lore around that. And again, a lot of these albums, I I generally do not listen to things in headphones, or at least not mm. good headphones. If I'm listening in headphones, it's probably because I'm on a walk and I've got my earbuds in or something like that. But, you know, in certain instances for the palaver, I've, you know, I've discovered that there's, there's benefit to taking time to listen to these albums in headphones. Salisbury Hill is a song I have listened to a shit ton of times. Mm. I don't know that I've ever listened to it in headphones. And when I did the other day, I was shocked to see the very strange vocal production in the second verse. Have you guys listened to this in headphones recently? (laughs) No. I haven't. So when, much like much like the time signature, if you listen to this, it sounds particularly straightforward and you can maybe hear multiple parts. But when you listen to it in headphones and, and good headphones so you can sort of pick this up, the first verse, the vocals are they seem to be, you know, sort of center panned, um, you know, probably doubled, whatever. But in the second verse, they're split out. And there, there's a little flexing back and forth between the left and the right. Huh. So when you listen to it in headphones, you get this sort of disorienting effect out of it that I had no idea was ever there. Because if you're not listening in headphones, it, it sort of just manifests <laughs> itself and it's not a big deal. So I thought that was really weird. I was like, I, I've never heard this before. Wow. Okay. I'll have to check that out. That's cool. Yeah. So we have... Moribund the Burgermeister, which is, you know, weird, creepy Peter Gabriel. We have Salisbury Hill, which is, you know, beautiful, odd time signature, you know, hit sort of wonderful, whatever Peter Gabriel, more focused. And then we go into Modern Love. Now, Paul, you had mentioned Bruce Springsteen. 
Yeah. I, I have a note here, you know, is is this a Bruce Springsteen song? Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, what what is it? it? It's it's clearly something that's not Peter Gabriel, right? Yeah. During his time off, he did see Springsteen in London. You you hit the nail on the head huh. inadvertently, Joe. But Springsteen had a huge impact on, on Pete right at a time when he was trying to decide how to portray himself in his solo career. Again, I always go back to, you know, presumably, uh, I, I don't know how important it is that Bob Ezrin is Canadian, but I'm going to draw the assumption, given who he worked with and everything else, he seems to have brought a very North American vibe to this. And this song feels very North American to me. There you now, go. It, it's it's uh, extraordinarily yeah. straightforward, which is a little unusual in the Peter cat catalog. And and this is the one, the one song I think where Tony gets to stretch his legs out a little bit. Like, it's not it's not over the top Tony Levin that we again will become to associate with, but it's certainly a lot more interesting bass playing than other things we hear on this album. You know, I think this and uh, and the tuba in Excuse Me are about as interesting as Tony Levin gets here. <laughs> and, you know, so if we turn the page and go to Excuse Me, so here we have complete unadulterated Peter Gabriel whimsy. Gentlemen, how do I feel about complete unadulterated whimsy? <laughs> you don't like it. You don't I like don't, it. I don't really care for it. And are, are we doing a song for Benny Hill? What, what the <laughs> fuck is going on here? Charlie Much like Seamus, why is this on my album? Yeah, I think for me, the the reaction and and again, it's 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 completely out of context of all of this. When I was listening to this, I was like, you know, why on earth would I want to listen to this? Because what he's trying to do, he did so much better with Genesis. And and yeah. and where he's going is so much so much better than any of this. And it's hard now for me to listen to it at all, even. Sorry. That seems like very anti-palaver to say that, but. It's not a bad melody, but. And, and, and you're absolutely right, Ken. It's not, but it's, if I'm being mean, it's stupid. If I'm being, you know, more politic, it's pointless. I'd say it's both. Well, fine. I want to be alone. <laughs> <laughs> When we should credit uh, Tony Levin as the choral director. Yes, he uh, he got he gets to to lead the barbershop quartet now. Doesn't doesn't Tony still do barbershoppy type stuff? I want to say that he does. I, I seem to recall seeing this somewhere on his Instagram feed in the last year or two, something like that. Probably two years because when he was in the toilet, but yeah, I, I, I feel will say like this it. is still something that's of interest to him. And and, and I will admit. You know, I'm not, I'm not adverse to a good, uh, a good tuba line. You know, they can right. be interesting, right? And, and the fact that Tony Levin plays the tuba just—it's so wonderfully Tony Levin. You know, <laughs> Joe, what are the iconic sounds that you like? I think you're a fan of French horn. Is it not French horn? Orchestra chimes, oboes, and muted trumpets. Oh yes, yes, yes. I like muted trumpets myself. Okay. Possibly the Peter Gabriel catalog will give us some uh, opportunities to voice our preferences and lack thereof when it comes to orchestration. Yes. Let's move on to humdrum. I had a very interesting reaction 
last night actually listening to this and I'd never had it before. And it was one of those things where, and it, it's sort of fleeting and it's not constant, but if you listen to, and I forget it, I don't exactly know how to describe it, but the beginning vocal line of the verses, there is a, there's a phrasing and then there's like a different phrasing and then it's back to the original phrasing and it's sort of flip-flops back and forth. That f like first, third and fifth part or whatever it is, that vocal line, the cadence of it is in my mind, a complete dead ringer for Fish's favorite stranger. Go back and listen to them both and tell me if I'm wrong. I don't think you're wrong. That's crazy though. I think you're, uh, you're onto something here. Joe, I, I, ha I haven't listened to the Peter Gabriel's play live version of this song since I was listening to this album. I feel like the feel of that is much different is than it? Okay. it is presented here, which and, and, and it's, it's different in a way that it does not say to you, hey, this sounds like something Fish did. But I think you're so right on the money with that comment um, with this recorded version. And, and like I said, it's not it's not the full line. It's just like the first part of each yeah. line that that is like that. And Fish just keeps that that meter throughout Favorite Stranger. Huh. But it was just like it, it was it was one of those like light bulb moments. It's like, holy shit. This is exciting. <laughs> there's like a whole there's like a whole list of things to go back and listen to after tonight. Well, that's what we do, right? That's right. Oh, yeah. I'm going to listen to the whole Kiss catalog. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing you guys don't mind if we keep burning through these songs here, right? Sure nice thing. So we get next on to Slow Burn. And this is, again, you know, big production time. This song is huge. The question I have is, is this a Boston song? You know. Huh. And the, the other note that I have here <laughs> is, is, is this album normal Robert Fripp? Because, again, much like Steve Howe, when Asia reformed and they did those three or four albums with the original lineup before Steve eventually left and, and Sam Colson came on. I think it was Sam Colson. I forget who it was who took his spot, but regardless when, when Asia were doing not so much Phoenix, but certainly Omega and triple X, Steve Howe adopted this Asia persona, which was not normal Steve Howe. It was very interesting how that sort of happened. And I don't know enough about Robert Fripp to know, but Again, when I listened to this album closely, I didn't hear the things that I was anticipating hearing out of Robert Fripp. And I don't know if that's true or not, but... Yeah, I'm equally uneducated in Robert Fripp to, to make any comments about that. Um, so, so we can ask our listeners. Yeah. Because I'm sure some of our listeners are educated in Robert Fripp. Yeah. I have no notes on Waiting for the Big One. Apparently, it just washed over and through me and made no impression whatsoever. Or I got distracted uh, doing some work. Not 100%. This, the same. I, for, you know, for me, you know, once the humdrum, once we got past that, the whole thing just kind of filters through. Oddly, Waiting for the Big One is the big one on the, on the album. It's the longest track we have here coming in at 716. That's as much as we have to say about it. I guess. <laughs> Uh, maybe the track was too long. Well, and, and and I think part of the reason why I don't have anything to say about this is because I'm always itching to get to the next track. 
you know, ever since I first heard this record, and, and I appreciate that it's over the top, but Down the Dolce Vita is just one of those songs that has connected with me. It engages me, and, and it has <clears throat> from the beginning. Now, I think it's very, very funny that at the at somewhere near the top of this episode, it wasn't at the top, but we were discussing Kiss's Dynasty. Because first note here is huge prog disco. <laughs> you know, you've got this over-the-top production. You've got this, you know, orchestration that's just like off the hook. And, and you've got this... <laughs> you've got this sort of, you know, weird disco guitar thing going on and it just it's it's almost like there's it's too gaudy right there's there's uh there, that's a great word for it yeah there, there's just a little too much glitz going on someone put too many you know it went too far with the bedazzler on on elvis's <laughs> costume here and 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 there's too much light coming off of it but at the same time you have to kind of look at it you know it's we're still doing waiting for the big one. No, I've moved on to open uh, um, down the Dolce Vita. You went disco, okay? I, yeah, I went disco. Can I just say, waiting for the big one is a dose of cultural appropriation. Uh, here in the states, we we have different blues genres. We have like a a New York kind of spiffy blues. We have the Chicago. Blues, And then, you know, you might have like the New Orleans style, which is a little Frenchified or something. It seems to me when Peter Gabriel introduces blues, he kind of does a weird kind of pick and choose of our different blues genres. I don't know what it is. I mean, some of this probably came through Ezrin. And I think... I have a complaint with John Lennon doing some of the same stuff in, in his New York days and his later years. Um, but it's just maybe even less becoming of Gabriel than it was for Lennon. Like you get a little too bluesy and it's like, hey, man, I know where you're going with this. And it's just kind of either boring or not really totally working for me. Yeah, I guess, you know, I had thought about the the sort of we'll call it blues interpretation on this. And, and I just, I didn't have the inclination to pursue that any further, but I totally see where you're, you're coming across here. And it, it is in, it, it's interesting. And I think we can very much with a straight face file this under, you know, cultural appropriation. Absolutely. Thanks. All right. So Dolce Vita, you were saying it's the glam, it's the glitter, it's the seventies Elvis of the Gabriel catalog. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and again, I understand where Peter's um, complaint about the production being too much on this, because it is. Um, But I I guess there's so much on this album that just doesn't, um, you know, grab me that at least even if it if it hurts my retinas, at least it gives me something to sort of look at. Right. This is the most lamb lies down on Broadway of of this album. It's so. Oh, over- really? I think I think Moribund is more Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, but that's that was kind of where I was leaning to. But um, when we get into the verses, 
uh, again, the the guitar lines get split between the channels. So if you're listening in headphones, it can be kind of fun watching or you know listening to those kind of bounce back and forth a little bit. Um, I guess that was maybe a trick that uh, that Ezrin was was keen on at that time. Um, hmm. But again, until you put it in headphones, it, it it didn't really it wasn't obvious to me that that was going on. Um, but but yeah, I think you know, and again, I think how much of that, you know, this cultural appropriation is the fact of you have, again, a North American producer, a North American hit maker producer, you know, putting his, his fingerprints on this. The end of down the Dolce Vita perhaps give him a bit of prog cred if we even needed it at this point, but he does go a little, dark and mysterious and yeah yeah i i think it it i think he totally gets some some prog cred for this between this and salisbury hill and seven four i think he's got his 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 credentials all up to date and and no one's going to argue with him yeah and and so that brings us to here comes the flood now ah beautiful and it's funny, I, again, I, I think it was a relatively long time before I actually heard this record. And and the, the part of the reason why I, w- I read the entire intro from the wiki page is because of the, the comments around this song specifically. Whether I, I whenever I listen to this album is irrelevant because I don't remember and whatever the case may be, here comes the flood. Either didn't make an impression on me, or I, I, I wasn't aware of it. Whatever the, however that that goes. But when "Shaking the Tree" sixteen golden grades came out, the nineteen ninety version of "Here Comes the Flood," which is just Peter and piano. Oh my God! It is so powerfully beautiful. And you know, at this point. When that was done, I don't know. Peter had a lot of, of experiences under his belt, and he takes the same melody and the same words, but it's presented in such a way that it has, on me at least, such a completely different impact. And I meant to go listen to the the, the Robert Fripp version, and I, I didn't have an, an opportunity to. But I, I remember after I fell in love with Here Comes the Flood from that compilation album specifically going back and looking for it on on this record and being completely underwhelmed. The version that's presented here does not connect with me on any way, shape, or form in the same way that the 1990 version does. Yeah. You know, and, and, and I think that's a shame, And but at the same time, I'm glad that Peter sort of reimagined it in the way that he did. Well, I'm much more charitable. I mean, think about <laughs> Queen during this era. You know, if this was a Queen song, it would be big. And and I think Ezrin was thinking along those lines. And it's not right. Big, but I, I still find emotion. Yeah. It's not unlike, except except that it's completely unlike it. It's not unlike Barry Manilow's Could This Be Magic? Oh. Because the demo recording of that is very similar. It's yes. got all kinds of horns. It's got a, it's a really produced... But the the it's version good. that we all know and love is just this intense court sort of starts with just piano. And I'm with you, Joe. I think the first time I want to say 
I don't know if he performed it on the us tour or on the so tour, or if it was when he was doing like amnesty international shows and I saw it there, but I know that I saw him do it live, just him in the piano. That's what showed up on shaking the tree. And I was very struck by that song and just the emotion of that, of his delivery. And my reaction to, to the version on the album is the same. Perhaps it's just because of where I started with it, but just it just falls so much shorter than um, than that intense sort of passionate delivery in the in the solo. I, I like for me the import almost gets diluted out with all the extra stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. So I just I, I I find that to be very interesting. So on one hand, I'm very much inclined to just gush about this song because I do think it is it's it's beautiful and it's moving and it's powerful. But the version here isn't as moving and beautiful and powerful. Yeah, agreed. I I'm reading that Robert Fripp did a version of it as well that was yeah. also stripped down. Right. And like I said, I, I I meant to go listen to that, and I just I, I just haven't been able to find the time to do that, which is a shame because I would like very much to hear that. Boy, for people who like King Crimson and Robert Fripp, We're they're going to hate us after tonight. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and I have a very deliberate appreciation and distance for and from Robert Fripp. I understand the area where Robert Fripp, you know, occupies. I understand his importance. I have dabbled in King Crimson. I think I have three or four albums. But I'll be honest, King Crimson at this point daunts me a little bit because I, I envision it as this very large, very complex thing. And I don't want to go there until I'm willing and have the time and energy to go there properly. Right. So, so my, you know, my, my understanding of Robert Fripp is decidedly naive and I understand yeah. and, and, and acknowledge that a hundred percent, but it's not because I don't think that Robert Fripp is good. I just am not in a position right now where I'm willing or able to give Robert Fripp all the effort I think. <laughs> it's funny that you say that because there is a, there is a tendency, I think for a, a lot of people to sort of approach King Crimson with sort of this awe and respect, like you must prepare, like it's yeah. almost like, okay, now you're ready for King Crimson. I remember throwing on the first time I listened to King Crimson, my reaction was like, wait, is that the dude from Asia singing? What's going on here? <laughs> oh, that's sacrilege, Paul. <laughs> I mean, all right. I will tell you that the King Crimson crowd is just hipper, more relaxed, more fun than a lot of prog rock crowds. Uh, just, you know, having seen them once recently here in Philadelphia and, you know, followed them to whatever extent I can on social media, it's prog somehow without the attitude, which is ironic because there is so much pompous development in the whole Fripp's yeah. being. I'm taking a segue here. What is, is that Magic Rush song cycle trio that spans different albums? Fear. Um, Fear. Fear. So the equivalent in the Peter Gabriel catalog, Mozo. Have you come across the Mozo? I have not no. come across the Mozo. 
Here Comes the Flood is part of Peter Gabriel's story of Mozo, a character who would come and go, changing people's lives. He would appear in On the Air, Down the Dolce Vita, Exposure, Red Rain, and That Voice Again. But the Mozo, wow. as a stage production or movie, as Gabriel intended, never developed. So for, for those of you who have been uh. listening for an hour and a half and, and wondering when we were going to get to Mozo, you know, or why you've been listening for an hour and a half. You know, we, <laughs> Ken, Ken has, has strung you along and dropped this little nugget here right at the end. So well done, Ken. <laughs> okay. Well, I've got the link. <laughs> I search for Mozo and it comes up with shoes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. Awesome. Well, that I, I I was not aware of that, and that is interesting, especially given the list of of tracks that you just mentioned. Um, you know, they they are sort of spread out over quite a, a a broad range there, and some of them are songs that maybe I never really have connected with yet, and this may give me some extra motivation. So we have started then the. Peter Gabriel solo catalog. Very interesting, this. I, I think, you know, I, I've already made my analogy about, you know, what this record is or what it isn't and why it is the way it is. I think it's, you know, it's indicative and I think we're going to see Peter grow. I think there's an argument to be made as to when Peter comes of age. Is it Peter Gabriel 3? Is it 4? Is it so? It's somewhere along that arc. Right now, before we've gone through all those records, I'm going to say it's really not until so that the fully formed Gabriel is presented to us. And, huh. and and I think that gets lost in the overblown commercial success of that album. But we'll see if my, if my mind changes as we go along. People are really going to be tired of me, me talking about Peter Gabriel plays live by the time we get to sell. Um, but, uh, but, you know, there is, I, I think in right now, Joe, I would tend to agree with you in that, in that, you know, the, these first four albums are are the the workings of the so-called masterpiece, right? The practices, yeah. mm -hmm. and and the thing that I like most about Peter Gabriel plays live is obviously it's it's the best snippets from the first four albums. It's all the stuff and none of the fluff. It fits perfectly. Like those two CDs fit perfectly as the as the prelude to so and to us. It, it's it's right. it's terrific. So. Yeah, we'll so see. you know, again, and and we always have the the joy of the journey. Sorry, Jay. And as we go through these catalogs, and and we learn things as we go along. So, you know, I'm I'm providing what I think I I perceive now, and we'll see how that actually, you know, comes out as we go through this. And and Paul, I do. I've always thought it was funny that you and I have such, you know, I'll, I'll use a. a you know, a technical term or orthogonal views on this because I am very much focused on the studio albums and almost never listen to plays live. And, and you're the exact, you know, opposite of that. <laughs> so, so I, I think, I think our, our perspectives on this, um, you know, provide yeah. some, some complimentary 
perspectives. And, and I think that's interesting. Nice. All right. Well, gentlemen, I think uh, I think that's it. Unless we have anything else to say about this first Peter Gabriel album. Ken, nice work on the lore this evening. That was uh, a big benefit, I think. Indeed. Rock and roll. All right. So, gentlemen, next week we will move on to Peter Gabriel 2, or Scratch, as it's called. And uh, we'll see where, where that takes us. I believe, as we already mentioned, Robert Fripp takes the production reins at that point, And we'll see how that manifests itself. And uh, so, yeah, we'll, we'll do that next week. And um, we'll continue to move through this. And then as we move into the, the late 80s, we'll bring Fish online sort of and weave in and out at that point. So that'll be very cool. So, gentlemen, nice. as always, thanks for your time. Appreciate it. you've enjoyed this episode of progressive palaver as always we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you and we look forward to your thoughts comments feedback and questions you can reach us on twitter instagram and facebook we are at prog Pala on all of those or search for progressive palaver you're welcome to email us our email address is prog Pala, that's p-r-o-g-p-a-l-a at gmail.com progressive palaver is available for subscription and download on apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, spotify or presumably anywhere you find your podcast and we are as always hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening. I think that's all we're going to talk about. The rest of it, shit. <laughs> 